All right, we are starting the book of Mark. We are starting the Gospel of Mark. I appreciate what Grant's prayer this morning um, for Ukraine and for, for Russia. I think in these kind of situations, it's hard to know how to pray, and I appreciate um, the model of, of prayer that that represented. Um, I also wanted to say welcome to this church, and one of the things that we do is, um, I'll, let me explain our mission. It's led by the Spirit. We make disciples who learn from Jesus through God's Word, love others, and welcome dialogue. And one of the things I've been thinking about as far as dialogue, because I didn't have a very clear idea um, when this church was first started, maybe a couple years ago, is uh, what exactly that meant. And I think now I have a clear idea that dialogue is about storytelling um, and the act of telling stories because we're shaped by the stories that we tell. And I talked, I said this to our life group, we're shaped by the stories that we tell. We're also shaped by the stories that we hear. And church is kind of strange in that the act of storytelling within the church is like you have people that you don't know sharing their deepest, darkest secrets. And that actually doesn't happen in, the, in, the, in any other kind of normal relationship where usually when you share the intimate details of your life, you have some kind of relational safety and you have some assurance that you're gonna see that person again. But when you come to a small group or even when we have open mic sharing here, you're gonna hear a vulnerability and an authenticity that is kind of rare and honestly just a little bit unnatural. It's, it's kind of awkward for that to happen. And yet this is an unnatural community in the sense that it's a supernatural community brought together by the blood of Jesus, by his death and resurrection. And so we can, because we have eternal safety, we actually don't require having um, relational safety from one another. Because we have an assurance that we'll see each other in the next life, we actually don't need an assurance that we're gonna see each other next week or the day after. Um, because throughout the Bible, you have people like King David or the woman at the well sharing their stories. And the act of sharing it is a ministry to other people. Because when we share stories here in this place, um, whether it's in the open mic sharing or within life group, we are celebrating the work of God in our hearts. And it just has to get out. It has to come out. So that's why we tell stories. That's what that's about. Birds are telling their stories now. Um, <laughs> But that's all part of the experience. So we're going to think about that as we enter into the Gospel of Mark. And by way of introduction to, the, to this Gospel, um, I wanted to say a couple things. First off, that as you, there's, there's four Gospels. There's four accounts of um, Jesus' life. And I think when, how do you keep all those distinct? Well, Pastor Ray Stedman, one of the aspects when he talks about the uniqueness of Mark is, number one, it's the shortest Gospel. Okay. It's the shortest in terms of words, in terms of length. And then second, it's written for people who are not Jewish. Okay. So you don't need a Jewish background. You don't need a good understanding of the Old Testament to appreciate what's going on. Um, because Matthew and Luke, for instance, have all kinds of references to the Old Testament. And then um, the other reason why I was kind of interested in this book is um, it's kind of like, and I know some of you and the, the person I'm thinking about is not here today. But some of you, when you watch videos on YouTube or even listen to podcasts, you listen on like 1.5 or two times speed. Anybody? Anybody do that? Okay, some, yeah, oh, a lot of you do that. Okay, a lot of you do that because like time is precious, right? You're like, I, I don't have the time to really just listen to this and really, um, and really, well, to have it at normal speed. You need it at fast speed. And that's how I think about the book of Mark because it's kind of like the gospel on fast forward. You know, it's kind of this account of Jesus and everything's immediately, 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 as if Mark is kind of in a rush. 
But that may not be the best analogy of how I would think about um, Mark's gospel. The way I would think about it is it's like a teenage boy's rendition of the gospel. Okay, when I say that, what I mean is like every now and then I'll have this urge to watch an action movie, but I don't have time to watch the whole action movie. So what I'll do is like, it's like Jason Bourne or um, like a Bourne movie or like John Wick, right? Um, what I'll do is I'll just kind of fast forward through all the dialogue and just get to the action scenes, right? Just to the action. You just go through and you just get all the action. And sometimes I wish they just had like some of those movies where they cut out all the talking and it's just action, right? It just goes from action to action. It takes like 20 minutes, right? Um, and that's actually like the Gospel of Mark because that's his storytelling. That's his style. It is kind of like, it is an action gospel. And what I think is important as we talk about the Gospel of Mark is um, in seminary, they talk about this text versus event distinction. And we're going we're gonna to discuss these different miracles. And your temptation as you read this, and especially for pastors too, is to be like, well, what actually happened in this miracle? And then you're going to want to go to the Gospel of Matthew or Gospel of Luke because they have more words to describe the miracle. But I want you to remember something. This is Mark's story. Okay, we need to stick with Mark's story because Mark is telling a story from his perspective and the story is important because it's also about, it also comes out of the context of his life change. And he's, he's, the, do, he's the son um, of a rich woman. And he's possibly the rich young ruler. So it's, riches is something that he probably struggled with. And he also was part of uh, Paul's missionary journeys. And he was uh, kind of left behind by Paul because he kind of deserted um, um, Barnabas and Paul when they were on their missionary journeys. And so there is kind of a story of redemption that Mark is coming to this text to to writing this text, and he wasn't one of the original disciples. So I want you to remember that as you're reading, as you're reading his story, because we want to take the lens of his story, not just look at other people's story, um, because the stories that shape us are important, and we want to respect the story that Mark is telling. Okay, so if you, that's my introduction. Let's turn to the book of Mark. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 1, okay, Mark chapter 1, and I'm just going to start with the first eight verses or so. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I have three points today. It's one, the wilderness as preparation, and then baptism. Second is baptism as repentance and confession of sin. And lastly, the better baptism of immersion in the Spirit. So let's talk about this first aspect, um, the wilderness as preparation. 
And I, as I mentioned earlier, Mark's goal is not is to make this gospel accessible to all, not just to Jews, right? But he does quote from Isaiah. He does quote from the Old Testament. And he says, it says in verse two, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And then this is widely quoted. This is iconic. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, and so um, at the very beginning, you have this identity that John the Baptist is part of this advanced team, okay? He's part of this advanced team. He is the messenger. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he says, prepare the way of the Lord. And a number of years ago, they were doing the work, they are doing road work um, on Branham, the main street that I live next to. And in order to, to start this road work, you have to clear off the initial layer. You have to clear off the initial layer of, of asphalt in order to make, um, in order to begin the repaving process. And that beginning of removing the initial layer is called milling, okay? Where you remove the existing layer of all asphalt in order to uh, clear away all the accumulated obstacles and debris. Um, and that's exactly what's happening here. Um, and another image I can give you also in terms of traffic, right? In terms of thinking about traffic is uh, when a diplomat um, arrives in a city. And they send like the, um, the motorcade, these motorcycles to stop at every intersection and make sure that uh, there's no traffic, there's no income, there's no opposing traffic that the diplomat is going to encounter. And so that's John the Baptist's role. He's meant to clear the way. Okay, he is the advanced team preparing the way for Jesus to come. And then let me give you one more image to think about when it comes to an advanced team. Um, some of you... Um, may own homes and are, have done remodeling projects. I know one couple, again, um, that did a remodeling project recently um, that was really challenging. But anyone who's done a remodeling project knows that when you initially start the project, you do what's called the demo phase, okay, which is short for demolition. And the demolition phase, it's actually super, super messy. You're actually going to make an incredible mess. And whatever project you start, um, when you're in the demo phase, um, it actually looks terrible, looks because you take things apart in that phase and everything's just a complete mess. But you need that phase is super important because you need to remove everything in order for something better to be to replace it. And so what uh, what John the Baptist is doing is he's in this demo phase. He's clearing some things away in order for something better to replace it. OK, and what does that look like? Why? What, what's the image that God gives us in this section to represent that clearing of way? <clears throat> well, it says in verse three that John the Baptist is a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And John sounds like quite a character. It says he's clothed with camel's hair. He wears a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. So he's kind of he's kind of a strange guy. He's really a strange guy and it's intentional in describing it to us. And not only is he a strange guy, but he also lives outside of civilization. He's literally in the wilderness. And when I talk about wilderness here, I don't mean like Quicksilver. I don't mean Vasona. I don't mean any of the parks that we, we think about. I mean like the wilderness of Judea. I mean like this is like desert, barren, dry, uh, un inhospitable an, air, an inhospitable area that people didn't really want to go vacation in. Okay, That wasn't the idea. This was not a vacation that people were going out to him. But I think this is really important. Because the wilderness as preparation means in order for us to receive something better, you first have to get away from what you're normally exposed to. And for John the Baptist, the wilderness as preparation meant he needed to be completely different because people were going out to him. 
He didn't go to the people. He actually asked people to go out to him. Because there's something about living in civilization. If, you're, if, you're, um, if you live in our culture today, you are bombarded constantly by noise. I'm sure you've been, bar- been bombarded this week about messaging about Russia, Ukraine, alongside all the other selfies and all the normal kind of social media stuff that you normally get bombarded with, right? And we are surrounded and inundated by that noise. And so when the, when the Bible talks about going out into the wilderness, when John the Baptist talk, is, the, is the voice crying out in the wilderness, what it's saying is the way that you hear him is by going away from civilization. You need some distance, okay? You need to have some distance from the noise and the bombardment of everything that's happening. And that's why in the Christian life and, and many religions, um, quietness and solitude are super important because you need that in order to hear the voice of God. You, you need that in order to clear away the residue and maybe the lies and the noise that you've been listening to. And so this is an opportunity, um, just even right now, to think about what's the way that you can experience some distance, whether it's emotional or geographic or spiritual, from the uh, messages that you normally hear and the people that you're surrounded with in your daily life. And for me, one of those practices is just going on a hike, um, just getting some time away where I can walk around. Um, once a year, I like to t- do something longer, okay? Like maybe for an entire day. Ideally, it'd be some kind of prayer retreat. But those are ways you can distance yourself and have some, some um, space, right? You're creating some space to actually be able to hear the voice of God. So that's the first, the wilderness is preparation. Second, what I want to demonstrate here is this idea of baptism. It says, I mean, his name is John the Baptist. And in verse four, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says in verse five, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So I want to take a minute and talk about this baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. What does it mean? Okay, what does it mean? Well, the idea of baptism is actually pretty, is pretty simple. Baptism represents, um, rep- the, the literal meaning of it is immersion. It means to go down into something. Okay, and I think in the past I've talked about um, Christian baptism as being as like the making of kimchi, right? When you make kimchi, you take cabbage, you soak it in like a vinegar brine solution, um, you stick it in the ground for three days, um, and then after three days, well, the fermentation process means the uh, the brine, the the cabbage begins to absorb the properties of the solution that it's been immersed in, right? So that when it comes out, it's no longer cabbage, but it's kimchi. It's spicy. It's it's absorbed the properties that it's been immersed in. Okay, um, and that's this whole idea of baptism here, that when you go into the water, you're losing something. You're getting something stripped away. And then when you come out, you become something different. And so what is it that you're losing? I mean, Christians talk all the time about this idea of repentance. Okay, this idea of repentance. And so let me define, and I, and I can't do it fully from this text, but let me try to define what this word means. What does the word repent means? It has, it has two types of understandings, or two phases, you could say. The first aspect of repentance is turning away from something, okay? And so when you hear um, street preachers, for instance, say you need to repent, what they mean is you need to turn away from something. And usually it's very specific. It's turning away from sin. 
So repentance at its, uh, at its simplest just means to turn away from something. And that's the first aspect. And that first aspect is very clear in this passage because it says, and the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with repentance, turning away from sin. And it'll say that again in verse 15, to repent and believe in the gospel. The other aspect that maybe isn't as clear about repentance is you also turn towards. And it's not exactly clear yet how repentance here means to turn towards something, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discuss that. But the way that these people from Judea and Jerusalem were um, experiencing this baptism of repentance is in verse 5, it says they were confessing their sins. Okay, and so let's talk about this idea of confession. Confession is to acknowledge what is true about yourself and what is true about God. And specifically, when it comes to confessing sins, it means to acknowledge what's true about yourself in terms of sin. And I would define sin as um, attitudes, values, beliefs, and behaviors that go against God. It's not just the actions that we do. Oftentimes, we just focus on the behavior. Those absolutely can be considered sin. Um, and yet, it's also deeper. It also includes the attitudes, values, and beliefs that, um, that can alienate us from God. And so, for instance, one thing I've been thinking about is how um, so many people today struggle with anxiety and depression and issues of mental health. The thought of hurting oneself, I actually view it as sin. Okay? When you have self-destructive thoughts, I actually view that as sin. Now, that's not intended to be condemning. It's just we are created in the image of God. Um, and Jesus says when you have evil thoughts about your brother, that's hatred and anger. Right? And if you have evil thoughts about yourself, that's also hatred and anger because you've been created in the image of God. And so this is actually kind of a deeper, more pervasive understanding of sin than maybe that, than you've been taught. But actually, that's, I think that actually is accurate when we look at what the New Testament says about what sin is. And so what's this process of confession? Then it is, it's admitting it. It's, it's acknowledging the reality of those, of, of that, of those sins. And that's what, um, that's what John the Baptist was allowing for as part of this process. And what I would, what I would say is at the end in verse 8, what it's, uh, John says something interesting in verse 7 and 8. And he says, um, and he preached saying, after, he, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I don't think it's meant to rhyme. It's not rhyming in the original Greek, but it's rhyming here, which is cool. Um, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so what's John's point here is that he's signaling there's actually a better baptism. There's a better immersion that, uh, that John the Baptist can't offer that his baptism of repentance and confession of sin had some effect. It wasn't bad, it was good, but there's actually something better because there's someone better. And the purpose of this uh, baptism of, of repentance and baptism regarding confession of sin was just a warm-up. Like John the Baptist is just the opener, okay? He's just the opening act for, for the main event. And so what is it then that makes this more significant? Well, that's my last point, okay? Um, that's my last point. But before, let me, let me just say why, why, that, uh, why this temporary baptism of repentance is good, okay? Why, why is it good to have this kind of temporary act of repentance? Well, I think we all need this point where we, we hit bottom, right? Where we recognize that apart from God, we are completely helpless. 
And again, that's also part of the wilderness experience because part of the wilderness experience is having everything stripped away. Having all the things that you normally rely upon go away. And the Israelites also had their wilderness experience in their history, which was wandering in the wilderness in the desert um, before entering the promised land. And that was a period of humbling and of dependence. And that's what we're going to see Jesus is going to go through as well. And I think that's actually a really important phase for us to go to, go through. And yet for, uh, for Christians, when you think about John the Baptist's baptism, it's actually limited. And the best way I can kind of describe that is what it was like to be a Christian um, during high school, right? During high school, being a Christian usually meant being part of a youth group. For most of us, if you grew up going to church, you were part of a youth group. And then during the summers or during, you know, interspersed, you would attend a youth retreat, okay? You'd attend your youth retreat. And some of these youth retreats, I know, um, I know from some of you were like held at Hume Lake and they're just like super amazing. And it's like hundreds of kids together. And there's always at the last night, right? The last night of the youth retreat, there's this like, you know, a lot of music. Um, someone gets on stage and they do kind of this, they do it like an, they do an altar call. This come to Jesus moment, right? And they ask people if they want to receive Christ. And they also ask you, do you want to rededicate your life? And invariably, like tons of kids go up, right? Tons of kids go up. There's crying. The, again, the music's awesome. You know, just super emotional, right? And then like two weeks pass. <laughs> and as a kid, you're coming back from, you come back from this retreat and it's like, it's really like nothing happened. Right? You go to this mountaintop and then you just come down into the valley and just everything is the same and you feel this guilt and shame and fear and then you just kind of go back to exactly what your life was like before. And that goes for like 11 and a half months, right? <laughs> and then you go back to the retreat and it's awesome and it's amazing and then you rededicate your life again, okay? And you're crying and you experience that emotional high and you're like, wow, is that kind of going to be the cycle from now on? And then, you, and then you finally graduate from college or whatever it is, and you don't go on any more retreats, and you don't get to go through the cycle anymore, and it's just like downhill, downhill, downhill. That's what this kind of temporary baptism, John the, John the Baptist baptism was like. It was temporary. It didn't last. It was, kind of, it, could, it, was, it was limited in that respect. And what John the Baptist is pointing to is there's actually something better, something more permanent, something more pervasive, something deeper than, that, than his baptism. And it's what the Holy Spirit was going to do. So let's keep reading. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So again, as I've talked about, baptism represents going into death and then coming out into life. And as you'll also notice in verse 10, there's always going to be immediately. Everything in Mark's gospel is immediately, 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 right? Um, so as he comes out of the water, immediately the heavens are torn open. The spirit descends like a dove and he hears this voice. And this immersion into the spirit, because this baptism, that, uh, that it, and it's actually not... Jesus baptizing John, okay? It's John baptizing Jesus, which I think is an important um, act of submission um, on Jesus' part to recognize that the baton is being handed from John to Jesus. Like this is the transition point of uh, John's ministry and now handing it over to Jesus' ministry. And as we talk about the act of baptism, because that's one of the Christian sacraments, 
Baptism is a sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of being immersed in the Holy Spirit. Because when you are baptized, and when I say baptism, because we practice um, being immersed into the water and then coming back out, believer's baptism, that when you follow Jesus, that you can receive the Spirit, and that, that is symbolized by the act of going into the water and coming back out. Um, that signifies our identity as God's children. It also signifies that once the Spirit, once you're immersed into the Spirit, once you're dipped into Him, you don't have to do it again. Okay? It's a one-time act. It's permanent. And it doesn't just transform you outwardly. It also transforms you inwardly. Okay? Because when you go down and die, you die to your old self, you die to your sinful patterns, and you are raised into new life. And it doesn't mean you won't sin again. But it does mean your identity has fundamentally changed. You're now kimchi. Okay? You, don't go, you don't go back to being cabbage. It's impossible. And so uh, the voice that, um, that comes from heaven that says, you are my beloved son, that is declaring the identity of Jesus the son. And it's also declaring, it's giving credibility because it's not for Jesus' sake that that voice is heard. It's for everyone's ga- everyone who's gathered there's sake to hear that voice that God the Father is saying, this is my beloved son. With him, I'm well pleased. And the beauty of being a Christian is that you get to receive many of the righteous benefits of being identified with Christ. That means when, uh, when you are a son and daughter of the Most High King, that Jesus views you the same, that God views you the same way he views Jesus. That God can say about you that you are his beloved, that you are a son and daughter of the Most High King. And so some of you are, you know, some of you may have been, may have been baptized, some of you may, maybe not. And so let me, um, let me say a couple things about that, the act of baptism, the sacrament, that you don't live up to the Holy Spirit. You don't actually live up to um, being a Christian, okay? The Holy Spirit lives up to you, okay? The Holy Spirit actually makes you alive. So you are empowered and able to be alive. Um, when I was 14, I remember, um, you know, the church was talking about doing baptism, that the church that I was a part of, and I remember having an interview with the pastor. And I just remember being super intimidated by this guy. And sometimes I take for granted, like, how intimidating pastors can be <laughs> and what it's like to, uh, to have a conversation with a pastor. But I, I definitely remember, like, him being a larger-than-life figure and, having, and being full of authority. Sometimes I, maybe, maybe I want that, from, that kind of response from other people. Um, but I remember him asking me, you know, have you ever experienced any kind of life change? Have you experienced, like, a, like a shift in the direction of your life or your life trajectory because of what Jesus has done for you? And I just thought, oh, yeah, sure, that's easy, no problem. Um, yes. And he's like, oh, well, then you're a Christian. And I thought, oh, shoot, like, <laughs> that's what that means? Like, if my life changed, then that means I'm a Christian? And it just kind of just kind of floored me, like, but I'm not, I'm still, like, really, really not perfect. Like, I, I still struggle so much. But he's like, no, that's not the point, is that you have evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. That means you're a follower of Jesus. You don't actually have to, have to keep worrying and yet, uh, that has kind of been one of the things that kind of typified my Christian life as I continue to worry and wonder about my forgiveness and continue to want to confess and, and continue to confess because I feel this insecurity about whether I'm truly forgiven. And so let me bring your attention to something. Let me just read kind of towards the end of, uh, of the, chapter, or the middle of the chapter. In verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And that's the second time that word's been used in this chapter. 
and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so what I think is fascinating and super important is he does use the word repent. He does say, hey, you know what? You need to turn away from the things that you had turned to before. You do need to have a departure from your previous life. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you need to repent and you need to believe in the gospel. And he doesn't actually say confess because I think confession, confessing sins is implied. Because I didn't talk about the other aspect of confession. To confess is not only acknowledging about the truth of who you are, it's also the acknowledging the truth of who God is and what he's accomplished. And what does that mean? Well, that means to believe in the gospel. That means to believe in the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And that's not fully laid out here. Mark hasn't fully defined what that is, but he's certainly hinting at it by saying this is what it means to believe in Jesus. Because it doesn't actually take faith to confess your sin. Okay, let me, let me say that. It doesn't actually take faith to acknowledge the truth of who you are, but it does take faith to believe in the work that Jesus has done in our behalf. And that's not a one-time decision. That's actually a constant moment-by-moment trust. And if you, if you look through the Bible and really read, read what it has in terms of faith, you know, as evangelicals, we've kind of done a disservice to act like becoming a Christian is some kind of one-time act. You just receive your ticket to heaven and like you're good. But if you look at the way the Bible describes faith, especially for the disciples, it's such an up and down journey. It's not linear in any way, but there is this constant moment by moment, like this is what it means to follow Jesus. Believing in the gospel is a moment by moment journey of trusting Jesus, of of trusting the spirit to walk and work within you. And so let me close by by giving an example um, from my own life. And I want to tell a story. Everyone knows, like, the primary purpose of a, of a parent, once your kids get old enough, but before they can drive, is to be a chauffeur. Okay? That's kind of like the, the main job of a parent. And so this being a chauffeur is a little stressful when you have another job and, like, multiple children to, show, to chauffeur around. Um, but this past Tuesday, um, I was tasked um, by my wife, because um, she was in San Francisco, to take Abby to a park cleanup. Okay? That started at four. And we weren't exactly sure when it was going to end. And so I took her, the, I took her to the park, um, and then I told Abby, you know what, um, I'm just going to take my calls here at the park. Okay, I'm going to take my calls here at the park, and um, yeah, and I'll just, I'll be close by. Um, but the cell reception was really bad while I was at the park. Like, I couldn't get enough signal, and I was doing a Google Meet, and like the, um, the person was freezing. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just drive over to a nearby strip mall, and that's what I did. And so I'm at the strip mall, I'm doing my call, and then... Um, and then I have this uh, group text with some high school friends, my brother. And the group text just starts blowing up. I hate group texts. Okay? I hate, hate, hate group, group texts. And I didn't realize this. Um, I'm such a boomer. But I didn't realize this. Like, you can silence a thread. Like, you can just silence one thread instead of, like, putting the entire phone. You guys are, Vanessa's nodding at no, me. I okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. Um, so I didn't know you could just silence that thread, but I was totally triggered um, by this group text blowing up and I put my phone on do not disturb, okay? Um, I finished that call, another call. I had a bunch of calls afterwards. Um, and I'm just thinking, wow, wow, I haven't heard from Abby. Like, like what's going on? Like, I haven't heard from her. And so it's six, right? It's two hours later, um, and I'm driving over, and then I realized, you know, I should just text, I should just check to see if maybe she texted me, you know? And so I checked the thread, and it says, um, you know, from Abby, I'm done, where are you? <laughs> and it's 41 minutes ago. <laughs> 
Okay. And Tuesday, I don't know if you guys remember, but Tuesday was pretty cold. Like Tuesday was very cold. Like today's like great, but Tuesday was really cold. Um, and so I get, I get to the park, um, and then I see Abby and she's walking with her big coat and she's got her water bottle. She's carrying everything. And she's not like, she's not like mad. She's like almost got this half smile and she gets in the car and I'm like, Abby, did you, did you call me? She's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, did you text me? She's like, yeah, I totally texted you. And I think what's going through my head at that point, and this is like, um, this is like, there's just a lot of history for me when it comes to picking up my kids because, like, I'm late a lot, okay? I'm late a lot in picking up my kids, and I just, um, it's just easy for me to kind of beat myself up in those moments where I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I had one job. <laughs> I had one job, and I couldn't do my one job and just be on time to pick up my kid, and now she's, like, freezing at the park, and she's been walking around for, like, 40 minutes, um, and she gets in the car, but she's, she's, like, not angry. It's, like, it's, like, just real weird. She's, like, not angry at me. Um, and I asked her, well, um, I asked her, like, did you call mom? And she's like, yeah, I called mom. And I felt even worse. I'm like, now I got reported, you know, like, <laughs> now, I got, now I got reported. Like, it's really public, right? I'm feeling, before I just felt guilty. Now I feel, like, ashamed because now it's, like, you know, very public that, you know, Judy knows. She's <laughs> like, I had one job, right? Um, and so, um, and I just look at her because she's, like, super quiet. And she's just, oh, and then I, and I touch her hands because usually Abby's hands are super warm. Like, it's kind of our joke in our family. Like, Abby has super, super warm hands, but her hands are super cold. And I just said, I just looked at her and I said, Abby, um, are you mad? And she's like, no, I'm not mad. I'm just annoyed. <laughs> um, but I felt, I just felt the tone from her. Um, and I just looked at her and, and I think she was just glad to see me. She was just glad to be reunited. And I think when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit's often trying to get our attention. And we just go away. And he's texting us. <laughs> and he's calling us. And he's calling your wife. <laughs> and, he's, and he's trying to get a hold of you. And you come back to him and you're still busy beating yourself up, but he's not mad. He's not mad. He's just glad to see you again. He's glad to be back with you again. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today and you spend a lot of time beating yourself up and confessing sin, and think like, I just need to keep confessing sin and I need to keep asking for forgiveness because I need to keep repeating the cycle because whatever, whatever forgiveness that I had is temporary. You don't have to keep doing that. You don't have to keep doing that. Okay, once you acknowledge the truth of who you are and once you acknowledge the truth of who he is, he's just glad to see you again. He's just glad to be reunited with you again. That's what it means to believe the gospel. That's what it means to trust him. You have this permanent, ongoing relationship with someone who wants to be with you and celebrates every moment he gets to be reunited. And so would you, would you remember that um, this coming week? And I forgot to talk about the, uh, the sharing question, but the kind of the sharing prompt is, when have, you, when have you encountered and experienced the Spirit of God recently? Okay, when have you, when have you experienced like his voice or, or, or encountered him in a way where um, it just really spoke to you? And for me, it was that moment. Okay, it was that moment when I encountered the spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that there is a better baptism, that there is an immersion in the spirit that you offer because of your life and death and resurrection. And that we no longer need to go through this temporary cycle of outward cleansing 
of changing our outward behavior because of what you have accomplished on the cross by transforming us from the inside and from the inside out and now we have received something permanent where you celebrate who we are and even when we walk away um, and ignore you that you celebrate when we come back because you do not leave or forsake us we pray this in your precious name amen